We are now going to hear from God's Word, and we are looking at 2 Samuel chapter 6, and Danielle is going to come and read to us from your Word. If you have a Bible, please turn to it, grab it, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6 if you're at home, uh, and you can see it on the shelf, why don't you grab it as well. Remember, community groups this Tuesday is going to be on this passage and what James talks to us, so let's be listening. So, uh, 2 Samuel 6, verse 1 to 23. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on the new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs, and lairs and harps, and tambourines, and carcinets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God, and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken against, out against Uzzah, and that place was called Perazuzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of, of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place, inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honoured himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all the house of and above all his house, to appoint me as a prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. 
but by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by then I shall be held in honour. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. You know, you come across those passages in the Bible and you think to yourself, what on earth is that supposed to be about? Ever come across those passages? Or, or maybe you hear them read in church, say, a few moments ago, and you think to yourself, good luck with that one, preacher. I wonder if this chapter falls into that category. Chapter 6, there's a lot going on, isn't there? There's, there, there's, there's David wanting to bring the ark back. He's king. Um, and, and it doesn't seem to go well. Uzzah ends up dying instantaneously. Uh, David then goes from anger to fear. And then somehow he's jealous that somebody else is being blessed because of the ark. Then he tries to get the ark back again. And so he's dancing. This is an unhinged party. Uh, and then his wife, Michael, is bitter at him. And she is uh, driving a wedge between the two of them. Now, what on earth is going on in this passage? Well, it is my job this morning to do my best to help us to get an understanding of what's happening in this chapter and what we are supposed to be gleaning from this, what the author wants us to see. Now, before we jump into it, I think I need to do a little bit of context, just a little bit here. Remember last week, Saul was still alive. King Saul, the failed and rejected king. David had the opportunity to wipe him out, but he doesn't do it. Basically says, look, it's in the Lord's hands. I'm not going to lay a finger on the Lord's anointed. And so that happens a few chapters later. Saul ends up dying along with his son, Jonathan. He's David's best friend, remember. But what this does is by the time we get to the beginning of 2 Samuel, David is lamenting. He's grieving over the loss of God's anointed King Saul, that failed king, but also the loss of Jonathan. But this opens up a path for David now to go to the throne. He has some support. And then in chapter 5, we see something of David's coronation day. Now, when we get to chapter 6, what we have is David's highest priority of what he wants to do as king. And the first thing David wants to get done is to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to the rightful place where it belongs in Jerusalem. It's not in Jerusalem. And so David wants to restore the right and proper worship of Israel. And that's going to begin by bringing the Ark of the Covenant back. But here's what we find in chapter 6. is It's this journey, this process of bringing the Ark back is that David has his idea of who God is radically reshaped. David has his idea of who God is deconstructed and then reconstructed. David thinks he has an idea on how big and magnificent God is, but it's really not big and magnificent enough. So what we have in this chapter is we see David going from He's being jolted out of his irreverence and then catapulted into praise. All because he has a renewed, reshaped idea of who God is. Now, I think in many ways we can identify with David in this. We have moments in our lives where we thought we have known God and had a good handle on what he's like and his characteristics and his attributes only to find out that our idea of what God was like was nowhere near big enough. And we've all been there before. 
Sometimes it's the point of conversion, of becoming a Christian. And sometimes it's those landmark moments in our Christian lives. But have you ever been there before? You, you, you think you understand what God's love is like? Only to find out your idea of his, his love was never big enough. It goes deep and further than you can ever imagine. Or, or you think you had a good idea of his holiness. Only to find out that your concept of his holy, holiness was nowhere near big enough. Or, or you think you've understood his forgiveness. Yeah, I think I'll understand how he forgives. And then, and then you find yourself in this place of just thinking, wow, his forgiveness goes further and is deeper than I could ever imagine. Yeah, maybe we have those moments in our lives where we think we understand what our God is like, only to find that our picture of God was never big enough. If you've ever been there before, then I think you can begin to identify with what is happening in David's heart and mind as he's beginning this process of bringing the Ark of the Covenant back. So that's what I want to look at this morning. How David's understanding of God has been reshaped. What is it that he understands? What is it that he learns? What does he have wrong? How does David respond when he sees who his God is with greater clarity? So I'm going to split this up into three parts. And if you're in community groups, then follow along with these because this is how the study is going to go this coming week. So what we're going to look at first is what David has wrong. What does David have wrong? Secondly, I want to look at what David hears. So some news reaches him. What is it that he hears? And then the third thing I want to look at is how David responds. So what he gets wrong, what he hears, and then how David responds. What happens to him when he finds out more of what his God is like? Now, now if you've got Second uh, Samuel open, chapter 6 right there, let's just have a look at how this chapter is split up. We have the first handful of verses there, verses 1 to 4. This is the introduction as to what's going on. Verses 5, you can see all the way down to verse 15. That's when we find out what David has wrong and others', others death right there, but... David begins to get something right. And then look at verse 16 down to the end of the passage. We have David and his wife right there. David is celebrating. He's being generous. And Michael is responding with this bitterness right here. And she ends up putting a wedge between her and David. And this is so great a wedge that they end up having no more children together. That's why it finishes in this way. Now let's have a look at the first thing here, what David has wrong. Now you can see in the first couple of verses in this chapter, we, we, get, uh, we get to see David's intention. His first job as king, right, we're going to go get the ark and we're going to bring it back to where it belongs. Now to understand why this is important, we are going to have to understand what the ark of the covenant is. Now for some of us, we might be thinking, I know exactly what that is. Some of us might be thinking, what on earth is the Ark of the Covenant? So let, let me tell you what it is and why the Ark is so important. And to understand that, we've got to go back to Exodus. So most of us have a basic idea of the story of Exodus. It's when God's people are caught up in slavery under the heavy hand of oppression from the Egyptians. Life is bad for God's people. So they cry out to, to the Lord and he comes up with a plan to deliver them. Raises up Moses. He does some incredible miraculous things. And then his people are delivered from this slavery. They go through the Red Sea. We know the story well. And then out on into the wilderness for their 40 years of dev desert wanderings. But it's while they are in the wilderness, right? It's when they're in the wilderness that God reaffirms his commitment to them. God says to his people, 
Right, you guys? I will be your God and you will be my people. So when they're in the wilderness, God, God then not only reaffirms his commitment to them, not only tells them that they're his people, but God gives them detailed instruction on what their worship is to look like. So, so God tells them, this, this is how the tabernacle is supposed to be constructed. It's, a, it's kind of like a, a tent set up, which is the center point of the worship. And here is the dimensions, here are the materials, here's what it has to be like. And God says, you're going to have these guys called the Levites, the priests, the tribe of Israel, the Levites. They're going to be the priestly people, and they're going to organize and man this way of worship. Here's how you're going to make sacrifices. And in the middle of the tabernacle, you're going to have some place called the Holy of Holies. This is a really special place. And in the Holy of Holies, you are to make a, a box or a chest that is going to have the tablets that the Ten Commandments are on. This is going to be the Ark of the Covenant. You're going to overlay this box with gold. On the top, you're going to put a lid that is overlaid with gold and two golden cherubim. This is the center point of Israel's worship. That's what the Ark of the Covenant is. Now, why is it significant? Well, we can understand that in two ways. Firstly, it's the place where God's presence dwells. And we can almost see that from the words in uh, verse 2 in 2 Samuel chapter 6. That, that in between the cherubim, that is the place where God manifests his presence most. And it's amongst his people in this holy place. So, so that's where his presence is. But also, the second way to understand the significance of this, this chest, the Ark of the Covenant, is that this is the only place in the world where atonement for sin can be offered. And the whole idea is that once a year, the high priest himself could go in just once on one day. The Day of Atonement would go into the Holy of Holies and take the blood of a sacrificed animal, sprinkle it on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, which is known as the Mercy Seat, and there, atonement for the sins of the people would be offered. But this is the only place in the world where this can happen. So I think we conclude that the Ark of the Covenant... Is about as sacred as you can get. This is a very special centerpiece in the worship of God's people, the people of Israel. And you might be thinking, well, okay, we understand that, but where's the problem in 2 Samuel chapter 6? Well, we see that in verse 3. Look at the problem. And they carried the ark of God on a, notice that detail, a new cart, and brought it out to the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart uh, with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. Now, you might be thinking at this, well, what's the big deal? I mean, aren't they just doing what David wanted to do to bring the ark to where it's supposed to be? Where's the problem? Well, keep following me. God not only had told them what the ark needed to look like, he had told them how to transport it. And they were to do it bearing poles, so it was to go on hoops, so no one touched it. It was to be covered, and it was to be carried by Levites. So when we go back to verse 3 in Samuel, right, in chapter 6, hang on a second. They are not transporting the ark in the way that God had defined. It's not covered. They're not carrying it. There's no Levites. This is not what God has said. They seem to be misunderstanding something here. Now, now this party that surrounds the ark is 30,000 strong. 
There's something very Psalm 150 about it, with the mention of all of these different instruments. Can you imagine the sound as they're making their way towards Jerusalem? But this parade is suddenly stopped short. Look at verses 6 and 7. And they came up to the threshing floor of Nacon. Uzzah put his hand out to the ark and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Verse 7. And the anger of the Lord was kindled, kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. I don't know what you're thinking at this moment, but, but imagine the scene at least. Uzzah is out like that. Can you imagine the gasps of the those who were closest to the ark, who saw what happened? Can you imagine those towards the back of the crowd beginning to ask, well, what's happened up at front? Were people looking away? What was going on in this scene? And I wonder if you were there, what, you, what would you think? Well, that's not fair. Well, Uzzah, Uzzah stopped the ark from falling over. The, cat, the, 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 the oxen stumbled. The ark was going to fall off. And so he reaches his hand out to steady it and he's dead. This doesn't seem to be fair, does it? Well, if you think like that, you're in good company. David feels like that too. Look at verse 8. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. David seems to be expressing that same response. He's, he's angry as what? No, 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 hang on a second. Uzzah is steadying the ark. This doesn't seem to be fair, does it? David is angry here. Now, what's going on? It seems in David's understanding... And in others too, that it is better for the Ark of the Covenant to be touched by a human hand than it is to touch the ground. You see that? That's in their thinking. It is better for us to touch it than to touch the ground. Now you might be thinking, well, that's the point, isn't it? We don't want it to touch the ground. It's a holy, sacred object. Okay, we might be thinking that until we realize that this is the place of God's presence. And we also need to see here we need, to think, we need to realize this, that God is holy and people are not. This is a misunderstanding that's happened here. You see, us touching the ark is a contamination of human sinfulness happening here. Now, keep following me with this. This is not the easiest thing to understand here. I, I get that. But the Bible presents us all, over, all throughout its pages with a very simple truth that God is holy and people are not holy. God is pure and perfect, and we are not. What do I mean by God's holiness? God's holiness means that he is absolute in his perfection. He is complete in his moral purity. He is above. He is different. He is separate. He is other. He is entirely, completely unique. There is no one like him, not a taint of sin, sinlessness for sure. That's his holiness. But the Bible also presents us with the truth that we are not holy. That human beings have been tainted by sin. That every single one of us has been riddled with this disease of sin. That it affects every fiber of our beings and every facet of our lives. The Bible paints us with this, gives us this picture of human beings that we are not what we have been created to be. We get it wrong. Now, sometimes that is hard for us to admit. 
But to be realistic about ourselves and our nature, we must admit it. You ever have those moments where you think thoughts that are so corrupt you wonder where they came from? You ever done things and said things to other people that you just think, I don't know where that came from. I tell you where it came from, your heart. You ever been there before? I know I have. You see, we need to be able to admit this, that we are broken. We are messy. Sin is very real for people like us. You know, if you look through the world of psychology, you study sociology, you look at anthropology, you take any one of those, you will see pretty quickly that there is something broken about the human being. You see, the Bible presents us with this very honest, realistic, and true picture that God is completely holy and we are not. Now notice this. The ark is the place of God's presence. That's where this holy absolutely pure God has manifested himself most tangibly. So when Uzzah reaches out to touch the ark, that is human contamination going on. David and Uzzah, follow me, have misunderstood the massive gap, the fracture between God and people. They've missed the gravity of his holiness. And because of human unholiness, touching the ark of the covenant meant human contamination. You see, if that's true, that God is holy and we are not, for unholy people then, God's holiness and his presence is dangerous. God's presence without mediation is deadly for sinful people like us. So you see what's happening in, in, in the transportation of the Ark of the Covenant. They're not keeping to what God has said. That's demonstrating that David is acting in an irreverent way. But what's that showing us? That's showing us David has something wrong. David has underestimated God's holiness. For David, God's holiness is not big enough. Now we might hear that at this point and think, well, no, no, David's an exemplary guy, isn't he? You know, you look at anyone in the Bible, he's the guy you want to be like, right? I mean, didn't he have, he seemed to get it right when no one else seemed to have it right. You know, the valley of Allah and defeating Goliath. He was the only one who trusted in the Lord. And in the cave of Adullam in Psalm 142, God, you are my refuge. Isn't that exemplary? And then last week we saw his mercy towards King Saul. Surely does David really have this wrong? Yes, he does. He's underestimated God's holiness. And God's holiness needs to be bigger in his mind. Now we're left with two options with what's happened with David here. Number one, he's grown in complacency. So, so he had a good idea of God's holiness, but that seems to have slipped away. And, and like a slow leak tire, he has lost what God's holiness really is. And we would identify with that. We know what it's like to have a slow leak tire of a heart. I mean, isn't that why we come to church regularly and why we read our Bibles regularly? And that's why we constantly go back to the gospel of grace we've heard a thousand times. Why? Because our hearts are slow leak tires and we know what it's like to fall into that complacency. Could have happened with David. The other option is that he did have a good view of God, but it simply just wasn't big enough. And it doesn't matter how great David was and how much he understood God, his view was still not big enough. And that's true for all of us, that our view of God is never big enough. Even the greatest authors throughout Christian history we look to, you know, you've got those people you might turn to and just think, I love how they write. I love how they speak. I love the view of God that they have. You know what's true about all of them? 
is that a view of God is not big enough. And whichever one it was for David, we don't know. But what we do know is that he is jolted out of his irreverence and he sees God's holiness. Now, of course, that brings about a fear in David. Have a look at verse 9. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of God come to me? So now David's knees are knocking. He's caught sight of the gravity of God's holiness, and he wants to get rid of the ark. I'm not going to have this now. How can this come to me? Okay, that's the first thing that David has wrong. The holiness of God is not big enough to him. Now let's look at the second thing. What is it that David hears? What does he hear? Now at this point, David wants to get rid of the ark, give it to someone else. I I can't do this. This is too much for me. I can't have the ark. Now I've caught sight of what my God's holiness is like. And so the ark becomes something of a hot potato. Someone else can have it. So he gets gets it to go to some guy called Obed Edom. But while this guy has it, something amazing begins to happen in his, in his life. Look at verses 10, 11, and 12. Notice here, as I read this, how much his name is repeated. And also, look at how he is described. What kind of a person is he? Look at this. And so David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. Do you hear his name all over the place? And then it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. Okay, what's happening here? Well, the ark is given to Obed-Edom. His name literally translates the servant of Edom, but we are told he is a Gittite. Here's a surprising fact here, that a Gittite, those people live in the land of Philistia, So what does that make them? Philistines. Goliath was a Gittite. That's strange, isn't it? The centerpiece of Israel's worship is with a foreigner, with an outsider, with somebody who is not one of God's people. That seems to be emphasized right here, doesn't it? And also what we find out is that he's then blessed. He and his household experience God's favor, God's kindness. We don't know exactly what, but something of God's goodness is present in his life. Now, my guess here is that Obed-Edom is treating the ark with reverence in a way that David didn't. How do I know that? He's still alive. So they must, he must have been treating it well. But then he experiences God's blessing. So notice what happens in David here. He now wants the ark back. So he's gone from his irreverence to anger to fear to now some kind of jealousy. And it's a good kind of jealousy. It's a jealousy that says, I want God's blessing in my life. I want his presence. I want him right at the center of my worship in my country. But do you notice what David's being confronted with? It's this, that even though God is more holy than he could ever realize, that's not going to stop God from showing his goodness. That even though he's holy... Is not going to be something that gets in the way of him showing his kindness and his goodness, even to outsiders like Obed-Edom. So notice what's happening. He's not only seeing that God is more holy than he can ever imagine. God is now more gracious and kind and good and merciful than he could ever imagine. He's an outsider, a Gittite, is experiencing this. 
wait, if God's kindness can go that far, then surely God is kinder than I can ever realize. Let's have that ark back. So that's the second thing he realizes. The thing he hears, right? That God is more gracious than he can imagine. So what happens here now is that David goes for round two to bring the ark back. Let's have another parade, more people. This time we're going to handle the ark properly. Let's get it back to the worship center in Jerusalem. So they begin again. Let's bring these, this ark back. It's no longer a hot potato to him. And we see how David responds here. That he is so caught up in praise. Now notice, this has come from the reshaping of his view of God. He's caught sight of God's holiness. He's caught sight of God's goodness. And this means that David is dancing with abandon. He's wearing a linen ephod, which is a priestly garment. He's in the thick of this party. And you notice he's so caught up in who God is, he doesn't care what he looks like. His wife Michael is really upset with him. What a vulgar way to carry yourself. That's not gainly for a king, is it, David? And his response, I will become even more uncontemptible than this. Basically, lady, you have seen nothing yet. He doesn't care. Celebrating full of generosity here. But here's something I want us to recognize. This is so important for us. David's response of celebration is because he sees God's holiness and God's grace. He sees God's goodness and kindness. Here's what we need to understand. That David's joy is because these things have become a reality to him. Think about this. Holiness and God's grace and goodness... We wouldn't normally put those together. We might say, well, I'm going to contemplate his holiness, and then afterwards, I'm going to contemplate his goodness. I'm going to to understand this, and I'm going to understand this. We tend to keep them separate, like oil and water. But in reality, we can only understand one or the other when they both come together. Now, they, they can go together. Think about it. God's holiness says there is a massive gap between us and him. But his kindness and his mercy and his grace says, is that no matter how big that gap is, is still going to show his blessing and his kindness and his favor. We know those go together. Think about the good news of the gospel in Jesus. We are demonstrated in Jesus with a picture of God's holiness. And yet that doesn't go against God showing his kindness to us. We can see how holiness and grace meet in Jesus, don't we? But here's something we also need to see. That the more we understand God's holiness, the greater the capacity we will have to understand his grace. You see that? So the more we understand his holiness, the more we understand his grace. Now follow me in my explanation of this. Not easy, but it's at the very root of the Christian message. God's holiness says there is a fracture between us and him. There's a gap. There's a chasm. It's massive. And one of the pursuits of the Christian life is to expand that gap as far as we can. Understanding how good and holy he is and having a good, realistic idea of ourselves and how messed up we are. So what we'll find as we grow in our Christian lives is that gap will only increase. And that's a good thing. But here's the thing. God is also gracious. And we know in Jesus that this gap, when Jesus stepped into our messy world to save us, he bridged that gap. The kindest thing that has ever been given to us is Jesus stepping into our world to die for us. So think about that. The bigger the gap is, the greater the kindness it took to bridge that gap to come and save us. So you see this. 
The more that God is holy, the greater your understanding of his kindness. The bigger the gap, the more it took to save us. So notice what's happening in David. God is holy and God is good and God is kind. These two things are colliding. And when those two things collide in our lives, what's the natural response? I cannot believe there is a God that good who has been that kind to somebody who doesn't, und- doesn't deserve it. God has made me his own. I've been tainted. I didn't deserve any of his grace. And yet he has showered me with all of his blessings in Jesus. What's our response? It's like David's, isn't it? I mean, what do we see in David's response here? I think we can see two things. Firstly, we see David celebrate. Look at verses 14 and 15. And David danced before the Lord with all of his might, and he was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the, the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. This is, this is a crazy party, and in the thick of it, you've got David, and he doesn't care what he looks like, but he is just celebrating. I think Michael, his wife's reaction is interesting. She looks down her nose at that that expressive celebration of grace, doesn't she? I wonder how often we might respond to people around us who exhibit that kind of exuberance. Now, if Michael's anything to go by, the reason we might feel sour if we see somebody else experiencing joy, it's not their problem. It's because we haven't tasted grace ourselves. But you see David here, he's getting lost in the glorious carnival of good theology. His head is cracking, his heart is bursting. He has caught sight of God's holiness and goodness and the only thing he knows how to do is to dance and to celebrate and overflow with joy. Do you see how good our God is? Second thing we see of David is generosity. He ends up giving choice food and delicacies to the people in verse 19 and he distributed among all of them the whole multitude of Israel both men and women a cake of bread a portion of meat a cake of raisins to each of them and then all the people departed each to his house David is demonstrating generosity which makes sense doesn't it he's caught sight of God's kindness in his direction he's seen what his God is like and the only thing he can think to do is to live a life that is characterized by generosity right here So what we see in this passage is what David has wrong. God's holiness isn't big enough. We see what David hears, that God is being kind even to the outsiders. And so his grace goes further than he ever thought. And David responds with celebration and generosity. Think about this. This is where I think we probably are. We look at David's response And we wish we had something like it. I don't know about you, but that's what I feel as I read this. I mean, look at that abandonment. He's childlike. Not childish, childlike. He don't care what people think about him. He's he's caught something of the sight and the gravity. He's been captivated by his God. And he lives this life of celebration. Wow. I want something of that joy. I want to be pulled out of the monotony and the dullness that I so often feel. I want to feel something of the electricity of praise that David feels. Are you there this morning? Well, if that is you, I'm going to give you something that can help all of us. In order to experience what David experiences, we need to catch sight of what what David 
catches sight of. We need to hear what he hears. We need to experience what he experiences. You're like, oh, okay, James, but we're in 21st century Ruffham right now. How, how could we join that parade with the Ark of the Covenant? I can't experience what David experiences, can I? Well, here's the beautiful truth. Is that what David saw in part, we can see in its fullness. David saw the holiness and the kindness and the grace of God in part. But we see this in the fullness where? In the person, the work, the cross, and the resurrection of Jesus. Look at the cross. What do we have at the cross? God's holiness and his kindness collide. Doesn't the cross show us this? The cross shows us that we have a holy God. The cross shows us his his opinion of our moral impurity and our sin. You want to know what sin really means? Look at the Son of God breathing his last on the cross. But here's one of the amazing truths is that Jesus ends up dying an Uzzah-like death. He deals with our spiritual contamination. He deals with our sin. And as our mediator goes into the very presence of God, offering himself as a perfect sacrifice so that God's presence is no longer dangerous for us anymore. In fact, his presence dwells within us and we can confidently go to him. You see, the cross will show us his holiness, but the cross also shows us the kindness of God. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. In the cross, we have the Son of God laying himself down and considering it a joy to do so so that we might be brought into God's family to experience new life, to have the untakeable hope and to know him for eternity. You see, in the cross, we have these two things collide in fullness, his holiness and his grace. And then what of our response? Well, when we experience the cross, when we see it more, we begin to grow in this joy. Well, there is a God who is that great, who has done that for me. What does it produce in our lives? Just like David, celebration and generosity. People who are marked by the cross live like that. Look what he's done for me. I'll never get over this. I'll never get around this. He's made me his own. I am now going to spend the rest of my life serving him and I will do so in joy. I will celebrate his goodness for every day that I live. And then generosity. People who are marked by the cross don't just do generous things. We live with a disposition of generosity. We've caught sight of all that the Holy God has given us. And so it is our joy to respond With open lives, open hands, open homes, open wallets. You name it, it's open. You see what happens in David can be true for us too. So may we be a kind of people who have our view of God reshaped and expanded. May we be like David and catch sight of God's holiness and his grace. And then live lives of celebration and generosity. How do we see what David sees? How do we experience what David experienced? Because we want that life. We go to the cross of Jesus. Let's pray together and then Nick is going to sing. Father, we want to thank you 
for this rather complex chapter in Second Samuel. We want to thank you that in David's dogged determination to, begin, to bring the Ark of the Covenant back, that we get to witness a change that happens inside of him. Father, we love that he has catapulted into praise. And we want that to be true of our lives. So, Father, we're sorry that we haven't taken the time to fully understand the gravity of the cross, that we've treated it lightly, and that we have missed the full depth and significance. But we are helpless without your help. So we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you will move in our hearts even now and give us a renewed picture of your great, awesome, magnificent holiness but also help us to see your grace, your kindness, your mercy and goodness. Help us to see what Jesus has done for us and what that means. Show us. Show us what it means to know your grace and your holiness today and fill us with the celebration and generosity that comes with it. And we're praying in Jesus' name. Amen.